the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Monday Show. It's a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you are listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions or life questions. Pretty much whatever's on your heart and mind, I'll do the best I can. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send in your questions that way. If you're driving in your car, the safest way for you to call is to use the free KSLR app. Just hit the Call Now button, and then you will be hands-free and connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number, one more time, is 340-9580. hope you had a great day in church yesterday. Uh, we did. It was a tough message, but it was one that was important. And um, people got saved. That's the, that's the, the best thing. People got saved. Uh, because it's Monday, we've got our men's and women's Bible studies uh, tonight here at Calvary Chapel. The ladies, Linda McMillan, will be teaching out of the book of Judges. And um, she will be live streamed at calvarysa.com if you want to watch. Uh, or you can join us. We've got room here on Monday night. Uh, Pastor Ken will be teaching the men, and then we also have our junior high and high school age youth studies going on at the same time, so your whole families can get here pretty much uh, and enjoy a time with the Lord in His Word tonight. So all of that's going on. Let me get to questions while we await your phone calls. Here is a question from our email inbox. This one comes from Nacho. Uh, He says, I've heard of some Christians who believe that giving all their money to the church and allowing the church to distribute it um, to whoever needs it is better than handling their own financial affairs. Uh, We see a variation of this in early church in Acts chapter 2. Is this something the church should look at doing again? No, not you. I think one of the things that we we, um, misunderstand when we're looking at Acts chapter 2, and that's at the end of the chapter, verses 44 and 45, uh, when Barnabas comes in, he lays all his possessions. He sold some land at the feet of the apostles and says, you use it. It's yours. He doesn't need it. Um, that's not a commentary on economics or a financial plan at all. That's simply a commentary on love. I think one of the things that we have to remember is that in the early church, uh, it cost everything for Jews to become Christians. Everything. Uh, Their families would disown them. Their families would have funerals for them. They would hire professional mourners. I mean, that's how extreme it was. And so all of a sudden, you've got this this blossoming Christian community, um, and they have nothing and no one to depend on. So um, God, through Barnabas, Holy Spirit touching his heart, um, wanted those 
brand new converts to Christianity. All Jews, remember at the beginning, he wanted those brand new converts to Christianity. He wanted them to know, I got you, I, I'll take care of you. And that's exactly what happened. So it was a, a, a thriving Christian community that was developing, but these were people that needed one another. They depended on one another. It's not the same today at all. So um, this isn't a comment at all on an economic system. This is a commentary on what real Christian love is all about. We take care of our own. That's the idea. So I hope that helps. Thank you for the question. I like those kind of questions people are thinking. Here is a question from John from our email inbox. Uh, He says, I read an article that talked about free will. The question was, how does free will affect my faith? The author said this, Believers eventually encounter the age-old question that continues to be debated today. Do I choose God or does God choose me? The discussion of free will usually devolves into a Calvinism versus Arminianism versus open theism discussion, all of which uh, talk about how faith relates to choice, intellect, and controlling our destiny. That said, I have two questions. What is open theism? And second, as a Christian, can we or should we control our destiny? Uh, John, a couple of things. Open theism uh, is uh, its not anything that's new, um, but it's very appealing to us, to our flesh, because it kind of gives us what we think is the freedom to control our choices. Now, open theism is that there is a God and, and he makes choices, but he's more of creator of possibilities. And he doesn't really care, nor does he control what those possibilities are. It almost paints God as an, uh, a, an outsider, an onlooker, instead of the one who holds everything together. So open theism is just a sense God just creates the possibilities, and then we get to muddle our way around in those possibilities. That's certainly not a biblical doctrine. The reason it appeals to us is because we like the idea. If ever, if you've ever heard somebody, John, say, uh, God gave me a brain, he wants me to use it. Uh, that is uh, practically, even though the person probably wouldn't say this, practically that's a person who believes in open theism. So I'm not responsible to God. I can do what I want to do. And God just sort of doesn't intervene in the day-to-day, minute-by-minute affairs of man. So that's what open theism is. Now, I don't usually hear it brought into a discussion versus Calvinism and Arminianism, um, but but the question about um, choice is really, really an important one. Um, Do we choose God or does God choose us? The answer is yes. Certainly God, who lives outside of time and space, knows the choices that we're going to make. And God chooses us in response to that choice, but that doesn't mean the initiative is ours. And too often when people hear this say, well, that means that we we save ourselves, that's a work. It's not a work at all. God simply knows the choice we're going to make as the Holy Spirit draws us to him. So um, the idea of us controlling our destiny is the the height of foolishness, John. Um, we control nothing. If, if you'll be honest, and John, since I don't know you, this is really directed to everybody. If we'll be honest, everything we've ever tried to control, we've messed up. It's only when we surrender that we win. And that's when we find ourselves in that Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, perfect, pleasing, and acceptable will of God. So, um, Please don't try to control your own destiny. We need to be like Jesus and say, Thy will, not my will, be done. Another thing, John, about following the example of Jesus. Consider that Jesus never had an independent thought. He never did anything of his own volition. Everything he did, he said literally, I always and only do the will of my Father. That's what pleased him. He said, I only say what I hear my father say. I only do what I see my father do. So Jesus never once tried to control his own destiny. Even in that moment of terror in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus wanted to, to, for, for the cup of the crucifixion to pass from him, he ended that prayer three times with, nevertheless, thy will, not my will be done. 
And he was putting his destiny in the hands of his father. So, instead of reading articles, read your Bible. I think that's much better. Good question. Thank you very, very much, John. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Let me get to a question from... Carl from San Antonio. His question is, why was Satan allowed in the Garden of Eden? God was willing to remove Adam and Eve from the Garden where they sinned. Why not just keep Satan out? Carl, a couple of things. Satan uh, is um, one of, if not the greatest of God's created angels. Now, we know he made the wrong choices. We know he became the devil, but that's not the way he began. And angels have access to heaven. Uh, I, I don't understand when we read about Job. Job is is uh, just sort of a pawn on the earth, it seems, and and Satan is up saying, "God, let me at let me at Job." And and uh, uh, God says, "You've been searching him out. You've been inspecting him, looking for an opportunity." Uh, I, if I was God, I wouldn't let the devil in heaven. But remember, these are angels, and until such time when his access to heaven is cut off, we don't know when that's going to be, until such time when his access is cut off, he still has access to the throne. But we need to also remember, Carl, that Satan is a servant of God. As a created angel, he is a servant of God. Now, it's not his intention nor his desire to serve God. But the power of God is such that he is in control even of the most evil being ever created. So when he was allowed in the Garden of Eden, it was God testing Adam and Eve. Remember God told them, you can eat from every tree, but this one tree, the the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's the one tree, the only tree that's prohibited. And just like God allows us to be tempted... Um, the devil tempted Eve first and then Adam fell and um, we know how they how badly they failed the test now the reason God removed Adam and Eve from the garden was a punishment the tree of life was there and he guarded that tree with a, a cherub with a, with a flaming sword uh, or, or if they would have eaten from that tree they would have been there forever so as a punishment they were removed that's just the hand of God in discipline. So Satan had access, just like he still has access to heaven. But Adam and Eve were removed when they sinned for no other reason other than it was the punishment. It was the consequences of the fall. I think a lot of times, Carl, we ask the question, God, why don't you just keep Satan from bugging me? Remember, bugging you is Satan's job. He wants to kill. He wants to steal. He wants to destroy and that's his job. And so he does it. And God does not intervene other than giving us the power to resist the enemy. Remember, Carl, when Jesus had been baptized by John in the Jordan River, and the Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove. The very first test the Spirit-filled Jesus encountered was being directed or, or tempted directly by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. For 40 days and 40 nights, no food, no water. And at his weakest point, that's when the devil came. And not, not, not the demons, the devil himself. And yet Jesus taught us in that wilderness temptation, he taught us how to deal with the temptation of the enemy. To us, it just makes so much more sense if God said, you know, I'm going to keep all temptation away from you. A lot of us would say, okay, Lord, God bless you. Thank you. But then we also wouldn't pass tests. And those temptations, trials, things of that nature remain in our lives, Carl because they help us to grow. Jesus learned by the things he suffered. 
we learn not only by the things that we suffer, sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings, but we also learn because of the trials and tests that we have. So I hope that answers your question. Thank you very, very much. Here is an anonymous question. It says, can you explain the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism? And what is Calvary Chapel's position on the issue? Um, uh, anonymous Calvinism is, um, 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 to, to make it short, it's a five-point um, systematic theology that tries to explain all of the unexplainable things that happen in this world. Uh, Calvinism says God chooses the people who are saved. Now, that's right, but it's not God that causes. He's not the causative agent uh, other than his work through the Holy Spirit. But Calvinism suggests that God is in heaven at some time in eternity past, and he decides who's saved and who's not saved. We are so given over to sin, totally depraved, that God simply chooses or the doctrine is election who's going to be saved it's like he's saying okay you're saved you're not you're not you are you're not you're not you're not you are and and when when we say well what's the basis and well who are you oh man to talk back to god and calvinism simply believes that that our election by god is unlimited it also means calvinism does that jesus died only for the elect and not for the sins of the whole world. Uh, I think personally that is the most destructive point in the five points of Calvinism. And the Bible clearly says God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever would believe on him would not die but have everlasting life. Um, and, and that's just what Calvinism is. Um, Calvinism teaches that God's grace is irresistible which if you think about it, is absolute nonsense. In other words, if God wants you saved, he's going to make you saved. You have no say-so in it. But the truth is, we know that God's grace is resisted all the time. That's just proven by the fact that Paul says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. If God's grace was irresistible, then no one would resist it. Paul says that, I'm sorry, Peter says that God is unwilling that any should perish. But we know that people are going to perish in unbelief and have always perished in unbelief. If God's will was irresistible, that wouldn't be the case. If God wanted everybody saved, then everybody would be saved. So those are the basic tenets of Calvinism. I believe with all of my heart, Anonymous, it's, uh, it, while it's not heretical, and I want to be clear about that, um, the Calvinists who are born again uh, are members of the family. But I also believe it is the most destructive systematic theology as it relates to fruitful and abundant Christian lives that's out there going. I've seen more people get tripped up by believing in this insidious doctrine. And all of the fruit just disappeared. Because they have a view of God as a causative agent. If God wants me to do it, I'm going to do it. And that's sort of the practical outworking. Arminianism is the opposite extreme. Calvinism, by the way, says that no one can lose their salvation because God's election is sure. The Arminianists would say, sure, you can lose your salvation. Sure, you can walk away from it. And Arminius would have a tendency to be a cheap grace believer. You know, so I sinned. God forgave me. I'll come back and decide later to follow him again. And that's sort of an Arminianism position. Now, here's what's really, really dangerous about both positions. They're both wrong because they're both extreme. You ask what Calvary Chapel's position on the issue between Calvinism and Arminianism is, and it's simple. We're right in the middle. We have the biblical balance. And Anonymous, whenever you're looking at these difficult doctrines, you're trying to figure out what it is, always look for the balance. The Bible is balanced in its view of these issues. Let me give you just a, a quick example. Um, the Bible teaches as clearly as it can be taught. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1.14, among many others, it's just so crystal clear there that, that uh, we are secure in our salvation. Once born again, we can't lose our salvation because God gave us an inheritance guaranteeing 
I'm sorry, God gave us a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, I've got you in my hand, and the Father who's greater than I has you in his hand. No one can snatch you from my hand. So clearly we're secure in our salvation. At the same time, I can teach 1 Corinthians 6 or Galatians chapter 5 where it says that people live like this and there's a long list of sins and the idea there is this list of sins characterizes your walk with Jesus. You're, you're, you're doing it all the time. You're giving over to the sins. Paul writes in both cases, people who live like that won't inherit the kingdom of God. Those aren't contradictions. What you have to do is find the balance between those two things. So Calvary Chapel's position on the issue is right down the middle and the balance of Scripture Anonymous is the safe place to be. Good question. Here is another anonymous question. Let me give you a phone number again while we wait for some phone calls. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Anonymous says, on the gift of tongues, I see strong evidence in the Bible for the gift of tongues when it is used to communicate in a language that is unknown to the speaker but known to the listener, like we see in the book of Acts. But I see little to no evidence of its use as a secret prayer language between God and man. What are your thoughts? Um, Anonymous, um, um, the difference between the, 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 the gift of tongues as given in the book of Acts in, in the secret prayer language, and I don't like the use of the word secret, it's just a prayer language, a heavenly prayer language, um, is uh, the difference between a sign gift and then a gift given to individual believers. Now, in the book of Acts, the, the Holy Spirit was making his entrance into the world. I like to see Acts chapter 2 as sort of a reversal of the Tower of Babel. You know, when God confused their language because they were conspiring together to rebel against God, so he confused their language and everybody separated. Well, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, um, he sort of reversed that curse and people could understand languages or speak languages that weren't in their own dialect. That was a sign gift. The gift of tongues from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and more explanation in chapter 14, you'll see that the individual gift that's given to the believer, the gift of tongues, is a gift, I call it a, a vertical gift. It's a gift just between me and God. I have the gift of tongues. It's a gift just between me and God when I'm talking uh, to the Lord in, in a prayer language. Um, again, not like Acts chapter 2, but when I'm talking to God in a prayer language, then um, it edifies just me. It's the least of all the gifts because of that. But remember, every gift from God is a, is a huge gift. And so this is something Paul says, I would that you all spoke in tongues more than I do. Paul wasn't talking about the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, nor was he talking about the outpouring of tongues uh, when Cornelius, the Gentiles, uh, were, were introduced in the church in Acts chapter 10. Um, he's just talking about an everyday gift, and, and Paul used it. It is a wonderful gift. And uh, the, the book of 1 Corinthians... chapters 12 and 14, give us the ground rules for the gift. That's how important it is. They've got to be used decently and in order. And I pray that if you don't have the gift of tongues, that you would ask him for it and receive it. It's the one gift. Now, not everybody receives it. I understand that. But it's a gift, I believe, that God wants to give to everybody. That's why Paul would say, I would that you all spoke in tongues more than I do. What he's trying to communicate is a good gift, a valuable gift. So I think it's something that you ought to ask for and you ought to utilize. Um, Anonymous, I got in trouble yesterday. I got two minutes. I got in trouble yesterday here at uh, at church. Somebody came up to me after one of the services and he was not friendly. He was not being kind. But he, 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 he talked to a couple of the other pastors and didn't uh, wasn't satisfied with their answers so he kind of waited around for me between services and I'm always so busy between services but but he said so when do we get to speak in tongues and I said well we occasionally have afterglows where the gifts of the spirit flow but 
if you mean in church where we're all together on a Sunday, he says, that's what I mean. And I, I just said, well, you know, we, we would never do that because that's an out of order use of the gift. And the churches that do that are churches that are out of order. And he sort of got in my face a little bit. And he said, he said, so while you're up there teaching, if God told you to speak in, speak in tongues, you wouldn't stop what you're doing and start speaking in tongues? I don't want to come to a church like this. And I said, would God ever interrupt himself? The Holy Spirit wrote the book that I'm teaching. Would God ever interrupt himself and tell me to do that? And he goes, well, I don't want to be around here if you're not going to do what God tells you to do. And I said, God would never tell anybody to stop the teaching of the word and start speaking in tongues. And he was not at all satisfied with the answer and uh, he said, well, I'm just going to go out to find another church. And I said, well, that, that would be better for you. But, but remember, open your Bible. God will tell you what's true. Good questions. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. The phones have been quiet, so we'd love your calls. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand on for life. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. That was a fast two minutes. Welcome back to the second half of the Monday edition of the program. Hey, can I ask all of you to pray for Paula and all of our pastor's wives? They are away at our pastor's wives retreat. Um, having a great time. They'll be back Wednesday, and Paula, of course, will be live in studio. I'm sure she'll have a lot to share. But uh, please, throughout um, today, tomorrow, and and, uh, the early part of Wednesday, keep them in your prayers. Uh, We're really praying that the Lord is going to really speak to their hearts. Let me go back to some questions. Here is one from Roger. Pastor Ron, what is a wife submitting to her husband look like practically speaking Roger that's a loaded open-ended question and 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 I could spend an hour doing it I've done Bible studies uh, that that took an hour on this question uh, I'm assuming uh, that what you mean is um, does she just have to do whatever the husband says and of course the the answer to that is um, question is no. If uh, if the husband is going to ask her to do something that uh, is ungodly, she can't do it. But but remember the whole idea on submission. If you go to Ephesians chapter five, that whole section is kicked off by saying husbands and wives ought to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, and I think the idea there is partnership. And so um, when it gets down to uh, verse twenty two. Wives submit to your husbands. That's sort of a repeat. It doesn't make him boss. It just makes him the spiritual head of the household. And any wise head of the household, Roger, is going to um, to um, bring his wife into the partnership of decisions. Um, husband and wife ought to be walking together. That's why partnership, that's why time in the Word is so important. But it doesn't mean the husband is the boss. It doesn't mean that the wife has to do whatever he says. It certainly doesn't mean that the wife doesn't have a voice. And unfortunately, as men, too many of us, we've got Ephesians 5.22 memorized, and we've forgotten all about what we're responsible to God for. That's Ephesians 5.25, that we're to love our wives the way Christ loved the church, giving ourselves up for us. So we use the, the spiritual leadership as a club, instead of as an invitation. Like, I understand how accountable men are. I really do. Uh, We stand before God if we haven't been uh, rightly representing Him at home, especially with our wives. There's going to be significant loss. I want Paula's heart on the decisions that we, as a team, have to make together. Roger, I couldn't do what I do without her. She couldn't do what God's asked her to do without me. That's what a partnership is. 
uh, if there is a circumstance arises where a decision has to be made, um, I guess the husband is the final word. But any husband who would make that choice without bringing his wife into partnership on that choice is being quite foolish. So if that isn't exactly what you meant, try me again later. Let's go to Floresville now and talk with Margaret on line one. Margaret, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Oh, you're welcome. I have a question, but I also have a comment for the last caller. I listened okay. to a study that you imposed on marriage, and you taught, or you guys taught that if a wife will submit, and it's always better if it's a Christian husband, but if a wife will submit, it gives us the chance to prove to Jesus that we trust him. And that That's he exactly will correct right. any mistake that the husband might make, he'll fix it. We just have to give him the leeway to do so. <laughs> and I yeah, Margaret, the, the, only, the only thing I would add to that is that God will discipline the, the wayward husband. Um, you know, I wish I could say that God will make him behave or make him straighten up, but he'll make it hard for him not to. And And regardless, when the wife does... Uh, is faithful in her role. Uh, the Lord's blessings are on her, regardless of what the husband does, and and then what she will learn is that God's grace is sufficient. Good point. Thank you, Margaret. That has helped me so much, and it's helped my husband because it, he used to be afraid to come to me because he didn't want to have to share control. But it's like you know, mm-hmm. I'll let you run with, it, but um, give get come to me and let me have the chance to show Jesus I trust Him, no matter what you do. So it's helped us a lot, and I appreciate that. Oh, God bless you. You made my day. Thanks. Oh, you're welcome. Now, my other question is, I listened to your study uh, today that you did yesterday morning, and it's about the little children coming to Jesus. And my mm-hmm. question has been, can a, can a tiny child, can a, can a young child truly ask Jesus into their heart? Hmm, good question. Thank you, Margaret. I, you know, to have people listening to the Bible studies in, in uh, Floresville, that, that's, that's really great. Um, a couple of things. The, the, the study yesterday in particular was about babies. And, and certainly we know babies can't come to Jesus. It's one of the reasons that we don't baptize babies. And, uh, you know, they can't make a decision of their own free will. And these Jewish moms were simply bringing their babies to the, to the, the most famous rabbi of the time. And asking their blessing, it was a very common thing to do. Regarding children, um, in another context with children that are older, we're told, Jesus says, suffer not the little children to come unto me. Uh, They can come as well. Now, we understand something that the children couldn't possibly understand, nor their parents, in the day Jesus was here, because the Holy Spirit hadn't yet been given. But the answer to your question, Margaret, is yes, children can come to Jesus and make a personal, individual decision to follow him. And we see it happen here regularly. Now, we also are aware that there are a lot of kids who don't really get it. And they want to come to Jesus and they want to do what the other kids are doing, whether it's, you know, a five-year-old or a six-year-old getting baptized or uh, uh, raising their hand to an invitation um, in, in our, our children's church. Uh, and we realize there's a lot of them who really don't get what they're doing. But, but we don't want to inhibit them. We don't want to keep them from coming to Jesus. We keep throwing out the word and letting the word do its job. One of the neat things about kids who come to Jesus, and even if they don't really understand it, it demonstrates that the Holy Spirit is already active in their lives. You know, in in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about um, the children of of a marriage between believers is sanctified, sort of set apart through the prayers of the mom and the dad. So we see the Holy Spirit working and, and we want to give the children the opportunity. Now, to the to the point of your question, um, I can point to, I just had in my office probably 11 kids, um, grades probably second through sixth. And most of those kids truly understand 
who Jesus is, what he's done, and more importantly, Margaret, they understand that they're sinners who need to be saved. And they get it. And we have seen over the years uh, kids who just produce nothing but fruit their whole lives. And, and likewise, we see other kids who didn't really understand or didn't really mean it. We see them fall away. But the number of those kids that fall away who come back to Jesus after their fall, and I don't mean 10-year-olds, I mean when they go away to college or they go get a job uh, and the world tempts them and they, they fall in, the number of those kids that come back to Jesus is overwhelming, wonderfully so. So yes, kids can know who Jesus is, they can know they're sinners, they can genuinely ask for repentance, um, we've seen it over and over and over and it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to behold. So Margaret, thank you and hey, thanks for listening to the Bible studies. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is a question from Anonymous. Is homosexuality always a sin? The answer is yes and I don't have any qualification for that. The answer is yes. Homosexuality is always a sin it's always an abomination to God, codified both in the Old Testament, which reveals through the law the character, the holy nature and character of God, and in the New Testament, where we're given just as clear-cut instruction about homosexuality being a sin. I know that we have a, a world, and sadly even some who call themselves Christians, who have been convinced that it's okay by the culture that we live in, but the truth of the matter is, is, is by allowing people to sin without telling them what's true, we're demonstrating our lack of love for them. The world would say, no, we're loving them, we're accepting them, but that's not loving them at all. So it's always a sin, it always will be a sin, and it doesn't matter, Anonymous, if you and I are the only two people left on earth who haven't been won over. It is always a sin. God doesn't change. His character never changes. Uh, he is an immutable God. And and uh, what was a sin thousands of years ago is still a sin. The world doesn't get to determine what is or is not sin. God determined. And when people object to that, I always tell them the same thing. I'll say, you know, when you can say, let there be light, and there is, then you get to call what is or what isn't sin. So I hope that answers your question. Don't waffle on this issue, please. 340-9585, James asks, what is wrong with smoking a little pot, not a lot, he says in parentheses, to relax and prepare for the following day? Uh, James, I'll tell you what's wrong with it. God said it is. We're to be sober-minded. We're not to be drunk, and we're intoxicated when when we smoke marijuana. And in fact, you know, the argument, the age-old argument, well, it's not as bad as alcohol for you. You know, when you drink a beer, and, and um, most people wouldn't get drunk on a beer or even two, um, but when you smoke marijuana instantly, especially with the potency of modern marijuana, when you smoke marijuana, you're high the minute you start smoking it. And you can make all, all the excuses you want, but James, even the way you ask the question indicates the Holy Spirit is already at work in your heart. So let me ask you a question. How long are you going to quench the Holy Spirit just so that you can relax, so that you can prepare for the following day? Do you not believe that God's Holy Spirit is powerful enough to help you relax and be prepared for work the next day? The truth is, people smoke pot because they want to. They like getting high because they, they, they like the way it makes them feel. They like the escape. And we can make all of the excuses in the world, but here's what I know for sure, James. Every single truly born-again believer that is smoking marijuana knows it's wrong when they're doing it. And every time we do what we know is wrong, our heart gets a little bit harder and resistant to the work of the Holy Spirit. And in this particular issue, James, I've had 
literally dozens and maybe into the hundreds over my 24 years here who simply can no longer hear what's true because of this issue. Their hearts have become so hard because they simply are unwilling to give up smoking pot. It damages our ability to think. We haven't even begun to see the consequences of legalization of marijuana. We are to be sober, filled with the Holy Spirit, not drunk with wine, not high on pot. We're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And how little faith. You remember Jesus? And James is directly a word for you. Do you remember when the, the disciples would ask Jesus questions? I don't get it, they would say. And Jesus would say, Oh, ye of little faith. How long I have been with you and still you don't believe. Well, James, how little is your faith to believe that marijuana will do something that God can't? It's a really important issue for you, James. I pray you will repent and enjoy the goodness of God. Here is a question from Oliver, and he says, this is not my real name. Um, My wife cheated on me and married the man she cheated with. They say they're sorry, but they remain married. Does God forgive them, and what should I do? Uh, Oliver, let me deal with what you should do first. Once your wife married somebody else, she is legally the wife of another man. It's time for you to move on completely. I understand your pain. I understand the sense of you're the victim here. And then you see them and, well, we're sorry. And maybe now they're in a church somewhere. Um, Whether or not God forgives them depends on whether or not they're really repentant. And if they're really repentant, who wants to withhold forgiveness? I hope you don't want to withhold forgiveness just because they hurt you. But please remember, as much as God hates divorce and as much pain as you've experienced, the minute your ex-wife married somebody else, she is just that, your ex-wife. And not only are you free to move on, but you then would be engaging in sin if you were to pursue another man's wife. It doesn't matter whether it's a sinful marriage. It doesn't matter whether they've really repented or not. Legally, they're married, and that means she is completely off limits to you. So here's what you should do. Move on. Forgive as God forgave you. And make them sort of a distant memory in your past. One thing I do, Paul said, is forgetting what is behind, I Press on. So, Oliver, that's what you ought to do. Press on you and Jesus. And, of course, if God brings another woman into your life, you're free to remarry. That's not an issue. But don't let somebody else's wife occupy your time, occupy your thoughts. Certainly don't entertain any ideas that it's okay for you to go after her again. You know, repentance is a funny thing. We see people who are regretful. But only God knows sometimes, Oliver, whether or not they're really repentant. If they are, they're forgiven. If they're not, well, that's between them and the Lord. Here's another marriage question. Marv says, if God hates divorce... Why is it permissible for anyone who divorces to remarry? You know, Marv, God hates a lot of things. God hates pride. God hates a lying tongue. And I could go on and on. Um, God hates a husband who is unkind and angry and insensitive to his wife. And yet people continue to be that way. So yeah, God hates divorce. It breaks his heart. But sometimes... Divorce is permissible because of the hardness of our hearts. Divorce is permissible because we've been victimized by a cheating spouse or deserted. Maybe we've been in a situation, Marv, where 
a wife has been physically abused. God doesn't want her to live like that. She's certainly the victim and able to remarry. But short of God simply thinning down lightning bolts, you know, when when uh, a preacher says, and I never say this, by the way, at weddings, but, to, you know, the wedding, if there's anyone who objects to this marriage from this point forward, let him speak now or forever hold his peace. Um, you know, God could throw down a lightning bolt, but you see, God lets us make our own free will choices. And if we are guilty of the sins that cause a divorce, well, then the marriage, the new marriage is going to be extra difficult. It's just that simple. If people really belong to God, He's going to discipline them. I think sometimes we forget that. But yeah, God hates divorce. But remember, God hates it when we yell at our wives or our husbands. God hates it when we cheat. God hates it when we curse. God hates it when we drink or when we do marijuana. And yet, God lets us do those things too. Marvin, my ministry time. Um... There have been very few times when in pre-marriage counseling I told somebody I wouldn't remarry them. We've had some serial divorcees in our church. And I've just told them, no, I'm not going to be involved anymore. That doesn't stop them from getting married. They can just go find somebody else. It's amazing how hearts are hard how hard our hearts become. Just remember God hates divorce, don't let it happen to you. Barry asks, Pastor Ron, can the devil be in more than one place at the same time? Um no. Uh he can't he is not um omnipresent, only God is. Uh the devil is powerful. Uh, and he can't be in more than one place at one time. However, remember that the devil has sort of a legions and legions of demons that do his bidding. Um, the devil's kingdom is not a, not a united kingdom. It's a divided kingdom. But there are orders of angels, fallen and otherwise, and some that are stronger than others. The devil is the strongest of all of them but he still can't be in more than one place at a time. And so instead of him being omnipresent or even omniscient, he doesn't know all things. Um, He's got demons assigned to people and they're watching and they know what you're doing and they can cause you all kinds of problems. And in fact, I would suggest that... um, those demons, none of us have ever been directly tempted by Satan himself. We're we're not big enough for him, but his demons do the tempting. Let's finish our program with a call from Kelly on line one from San Antonio. Kelly, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, I just have a quick question. I have a statue in my yard of St. Francis. Um, I'm a Christian, have been all my life. My husband doesn't like the statue and thinks that I'm like erecting one of those statues that people are going to worship or something and really bothering me and he's upset about it and I would never worship a statue and I'm just wanting to get your opinion on it. Okay, um, Kelly, I'm sorry, but I'm going to agree with your husband. And I know you're not worshiping a statue. Uh, that, that's not the question here. Um, but, but, you know, the, 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 the really, really bad teaching, false teaching of the Catholic Church over the centuries has caused so many people to stumble, uh, deifying almost um, um, saints. Um, And uh, St. Francis, St. Christopher, uh, so many others, um, they're just regular people. St. Francis himself would be embarrassed by the fact that you have a a statue of him in your yard. And and it, it deflects away from Jesus, and Jesus needs to be the center of our hearts, our thoughts, our conversation. We're to focus on him, to meditate on him. He is the savior of our souls. And while it's clear that you understand that, um, this statue uh, can be a source of stumbling, not just for other people, Kelly, but even for you. What I would ask you to do is really prayerfully 
consider why you have that statue there, what it means to you, and 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 what your motivation is. And here's a case. I I had a question earlier in the program about what is uh, a wife submitting to her husband look like practically speaking. Well, this is a case where your husband, as a believer, the head of your household, accountable to Jesus Himself for your walk. This is a place where you really need to submit to His leadership. And you do it not because you've given in, but because it's the right thing to do. And um, again, you said he's really upset about it. I hope it's a a, a kind upset. Um, but, but this is a man who loves you and he wants what's best for you. And he wants your house, your home, to be undivided in your wholehearted devotion to Jesus and Jesus alone. Icons, statues, idols have no place in the homes and the hearts of a, of a born-again believer. And you will find that where those icons are veneered, not veneered, what's the word I'm looking for? They, they say we don't worship them, we venerate. That's venerate. the word. We venerate them. Where, where those statues are venerated, the relationship with Jesus gets cloudy and muddled. So, Kelly, I'm I'm with him on this one. I hope you're not upset at me, but I've always promised I would tell people the truth. Having a statue of of a saint uh, who's no more saint than you are, Kelly, as a born-again believer, um, is not sound doctrinally. Hey, thanks for the question. Thanks for the program. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. Remember our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies tonight at 7. Ladies, you can watch at calvaryessay.com. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.